Hi everyone, I'm Elizabeth Stein, founder and CEO of Purely Elizabeth, and this is Live Purely with Elizabeth, featuring candid conversations about how to thrive on your wellness journey. This week's guest is Mark Sisson, New York Times bestselling author, blogger, seasoned entrepreneur, and co-founder of Primal Kitchen. Mark is a former elite endurance athlete, finishing fourth place in Ironman World Championships, one of the OGs of the Primal Movement, starting with his blog, Mark's Daily Apple, followed by his best-selling books, The Primal Blueprint and Keto Reset Diet. He ultimately sold Primal Kitchen, his food company dedicated to changing the way the world eats through condiments, sauces, and proteins to craft foods. In this episode, Mark shares all about his personal health journey from being an endurance athlete and realizing how the food he was putting into his body was not working for his health, which ultimately paved the way for the Primal Movement and launching Primal Kitchen. Mark talks about building an authentic brand, the importance of pivoting in business, and how timing is everything, both in business and in life. Why we should only be eating two meals a day in order to be metabolically flexible, and how we can turn on and off gene expression for better health. There are so many gems in this episode from both a business standpoint as well as nutrition, really from someone who's been in the wellness entrepreneur space for so many years. I love how we both share the same mission of changing the way the world eats, starting with education and then through products. It was a true pleasure talking with such a legend in the industry. Keep listening to learn more. I'm so excited to share with you our new five grain and seed oatmeal multi-packs. We just launched two incredibly delicious varieties, classic cinnamon and banana nut. Our new oatmeals are unlike anything on the market. Intentionally crafted with a plant-based protein blend of pea and chickpeas, sweetened with coconut sugar, plus superfood ingredients like chia and flax, perfect to fuel your busy day. These single-serve packets are total game changers with irresistible taste and texture that's ready in literally a minute and perfectly suited for our new lifestyles back on the go or those days that we're still at home and you want an elevated quick breakfast. So head on over to your local Sprouts or Kroger or head on over to purelyelizabeth.com and pick up your new favorite breakfast staple. Mark, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm so excited just to dive into your story and your journey. Well, thank you for having me and I'm happy to share it. So at Purely Elizabeth, our North Star is really helping our customers thrive on their wellness journey. And for that reason, I'm so excited to dive into your story. You certainly have an amazing personal wellness journey that's gotten you where you are today. So I'd love to really start at the beginning, start when you were a child, when you were doing endurance athletics, and then to really where you are today in that journey. I will also note that I'm not sure if you know, you probably don't, but I was a triathlete and marathoner myself. I, however, was just happy to cross the finish line while you were doing, I think I read a two hour and 18 minute marathon. So very different scales of the competition. (laughs) Yeah, but you know, still um, very, you know, the similarities will bear out over time and the, uh, the benefits or not of doing that sort of endurance training we can discuss later on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I, I, I grew up in a small town in Maine. I lived a couple miles from school. So I, I found it easier to jog to and from school than take the bus. 
that was my early introduction to endurance athletics. I was kind of too small to play football, baseball, basketball, hockey, all of the major sports. So when spring track rolled around and I was a freshman in high school, I found myself just entering a couple of meets and doing very well. I, I finished, usually won the mile and the two mile in those, in those meets. And based on the success I had and the credibility I got from the other athletes around me, I pursued this endurance mode for most of my life, which manifested itself in becoming a decent a collegiate athlete and then going into what we used to call road racing. And my son actually brought that up the other day. What road racing, dad, what is that? What does that mean? It was 5k, 10k, half marathons, 20ks, marathons, whatever. It was any sort of opportunity to, to race against other people outside of collegiate organized sports. And it was a big deal in the late seventies, early eighties, when I was coming into my own. So I trained hard, I did well, but I was always either injured or at the effect of a depressed immune system. So I got colds and flu a lot. I had aches and pains. I had, I started to develop arthritis in my feet. I had irritable bowel syndrome, pretty bad most of my life, like from the age of 14 to 47. And that affected my training strategy. And, you know, so here I was in those days, if you did endurance athletics, you were supposed to be the fittest people in the world. It was good for your heart. You know, there had been several books written on, on cardio, cardio, you know, a road, Ken Cooper wrote a book called aerobics, which was a big hit in 1968. And so I thought I was doing all the right things. You know, I was training hard, putting in a lot of miles. I was eating the complex carbohydrate diet that, that virtually every sports nutritionist suggested you needed to eat in order to fuel all the miles. And yet I was, should have been the picture of health. And I was actually the opposite of that. I was, I was the antithesis of health with all of these maladies that I had. So after struggling for years with all of these things, I just realized I wasn't willing to sacrifice and suffer and struggle that much for no money in those days as an endurance athlete. So, you know, I, I finished fifth in the U.S. National Championships in the marathon in 1980. I finished fourth at Ironman in Hawaii in 82. But that was sort of the end of my endurance career. I kept training for years after that because it was a you know, you find that it's, that it's ingrained in your brain. It's almost a, a sickness to, to feel like you have to train that hard every day. But I started to refocus my intent on figuring out what I'd done wrong. And not just for myself, but trying to identify some of these things, particularly with regard to diet, that everyone else seems to be doing wrong and is causing so much uh, pain and suffering among the people. So I shifted my, my intention toward finding these hidden genetic switches that we all have. I had a background in biology. I was pre-med uh, at Williams College. I, I didn't go down the, the doctor path, obviously, but I was pre-med. I was very interested in evolution. Evolutionary biology was sort of becoming a thing in the 70s, early 70s. And then in the 80s and 90s, genetic science started to, to really poke uh, its way into every study. So every study that you looked at from 1990 onward always looked, at least in biological systems, always looked at the effect that whatever the, the variable was had on the genes, you know, what genes were being turned on, what genes were being turned off. I love that concept. And I thought, well, that's really the secret is, is, is trying to identify these hidden genetic switches that we all have. So much of my work focused on 
the diet because I thought so much of what was going on with me was diet related. The arthritis that I had in my feet, the irritable bowel syndrome, the suppression of the immune system, the GERD, the hemorrhoids. I mean, every, you know, it's like all of this stuff seemed to be pointing toward bad dietary choices or at least inappropriate for my own biology. So that was really the, the, the main focus I had starting in the mid eighties and, and, you know, progressing all the way to now, but in 2006, I started a blog called Mark's daily apple, which I used to disseminate the information that I was uncovering and to try and put it out there into the universe in a way that was easily understood so that people could take responsibility for their own health through the choices and, and making conscious decisions about what they were eating and how much sleep they were getting and how much sun exposure they were getting and what sorts of of athletic or, you know, workout strategies they were employing. And so I, I sort of encapsulated all this into a, a framework that I call the primal blueprint. And it was basically kind of based on, again, evolutionary biology. All of the clues for good health sort of come from, from how we evolved to get here. And then the proof seems to happen as a result of the studies looking at, at gene expression in the lab. So that's kind of the broad picture of how I got to where I am. Perfect. Well, well, we'll dive into some of those pieces for sure. So curious to hear, you know, when you were starting to uncover and realize what food was doing to you, what was the conversation at the time like? I mean, I can't imagine that there was so much conversation, whether it was within the endurance environment or elsewhere. Oh, it was it was um, very difficult to contravene conventional wisdom. Most of my eating strategy revolved around grains when I was an athlete, you know, I was trying to get a thousand grams of carbs a day to be able to, to go out and run 15 or 20 miles or cycle a hundred miles literally every day for years and years and years. And so the conventional wisdom was you have to fuel that with, with grains and, or with carbohydrates anyway, but grains, grains seem to be the, the cheapest and most efficient source of these carbs. Well, I started looking into grains and how potentially deleterious grains might be to one's health. And I started with looking at celiac, but then if, you know, as, as you dive deeper and deeper into the research, you start to realize that there's a lot of work been done on gluten over the years, but, but nobody seemed to want to take the stand that maybe grains weren't good for you. Maybe, maybe one of the best things people like me could do was eliminate grains entirely. So it wasn't until I was 47 that, and my wife had been doing a little bit of research and she had already eliminated grains from her diet. She said, why don't you try it? You know, you may, maybe, maybe you'll notice something, do a 30 day experiment. And I did, and it was transformative. It was life changing. My GERD went away. My, my irritable bowel syndrome went away forever. And this is something I've lived with every day of my life. Arthritis disappeared in my feet. I felt more, you know, clear headed, my skin cleared up. I never got hemorrhoids after that. And so it was a real eye opening experience to think that by eliminating one type of food, a type of food, by the way, that had been promoted highly my entire career, it could have that much effect on me. And I started to think, well, if it's, you know, if I defended my right to consume carbohydrates and particularly grains, even in the face of the, of the evidence that I was reading about, I wonder how many tens of millions of people were having similar issues with, with a sensitivity, not, not, you know, not a life or death issue for most people, but just a sensitivity to grains. And maybe people had other uh, issues with nightshades or with certain types of legumes that were the reason the FODMAP diet got, got started. So it was this sort of eye-opening experience 
of my own personal journey and, and the effect that it had on me steered me away from carbohydrates in general, steered me toward fats. And that's another example of the conventional wisdom at the time, which was, you know, if you have too, too much fat in your diet, you're going to get heart disease and die. Uh, you know, and it was really bizarre to try to find good research that contravened that. And yet when you did find the research, you start to go, well, how, how come nobody's talking about this? Everybody continues to promote this low fat uh, diet. And this was in back in the days of, you know, McDougall had, had his thing going and the China study was the big deal there. So there's a lot of movement toward reducing the amount of fat in your diet. When in fact, I was looking for a way to, because I'd already chosen to reduce the amount of carbs in my diet. Like, what do I do? More protein, more fat. And as I started to look at the, the, the idea of healthy fats, you know, a whole, again, another whole world opened up that said, look, if you consume healthy fats, whether it's saturated fat from animal products or avocados or avocado oil, coconut oil, butter, lard, ghee, and, and stay away from the industrial seed oils, the, the canola, soybean, corn oil types of fats, which are not good for you. If you could identify the healthy fats and stay away from the unhealthy fats, there was a, every reason that you could incorporate more fat into your diet and be healthier as a result of doing that. So to take a stand in those areas early on in 2005, 2006, 2007, you know, there are a lot of people said, Mark, you're crazy. You're ruining people's health by telling them they, that they can eat more fat and then telling them that they don't even have to exercise that much to lose weight. So, it, you know, it was, a, <laughs> it was like kind of, kind of the wild west of, in these early days of the yeah. ancestral health movement. And yet the, the research over the past 15 years has really started to prove that those of us who are raising our hands and saying, hey, why is it that we have to promote grains? And why is it that that you say meat is bad for you when there really isn't any good evidence that meat is bad for you. And now it's, now it's becoming a thing. The latest thing of course, is the, is the whole plant-based movement, which we have to sort of, you know, identify as a sort of a new thorn in our side, but anyway, I, I'm digressing. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. So as you talk about, you know, initially it was taking out grains and seed oils, et cetera. I want to get back to your earlier comment about gene expression and turning on and off. Can you talk a little bit about how those correlate and what happens? Yeah. You know, we all have these, this, this blueprint that we've, that we're born with this sort of DNA blueprint that, that wants to build us as strong, lean, fit, productive human beings. And it's th th this blueprint, this genetic recipe is based on millions of years of human evolution, hundreds of millions of years of mammalian evolution. And it's designed to respond to input. In other words, genes just don't turn on or off in the absence of a signal. Genes need a signal to be turned on or off and to build the protein, the corresponding protein that they're there for. So we have certain genes that will turn on in response to inflammatory behavior, whether it's a twisted ankle, whether it's weeks of stress, whether it's bad food, whether it's high you know, omega-6 high oils, sugar, it can be inflammatory. And so... Part of what happens with the diet is you that your choices of food can prompt your body to turn on these inflammatory genes or or turn on the anti-inflammatory genes and turn off the inflammation uh, can prompt your body to to build muscle in in one way or can also prompt your body to literally cannibalize muscle tissue 
if certain other genes are turned on, particularly under, under stress. There are certain things that we can do that turn on the genes that boost the immune system. This has been the biggest issue with COVID. If you have a strong immune system, COVID is not is not going to be a big deal for, you know, 99.99999% of the people if you have a strong, robust immune system. I have said for the last year and a half, two years now, COVID really isn't a public health problem. It's a personal immune system problem. So many of the people who have had issues with COVID and have either had long COVID or died, these are, these are people who had, you know, comorbidities, multiple other things where their genes had responded to Whatever behavior, whether it was food or lack of sleep or high, high stress, had caused the immune system to be compromised. It's interesting. I've, I've had a number of people say, now, wait a minute, you know, there's one, one of my friends who was a triathlete and uh, the triathlete got COVID and almost died. And I'm like, well, wow. you know, when I was training for triathlons, uh, I had no immune system. I, was, I would get sick three or four or five times a year. So I would have been the same guy. So you can't tell me that training for for a triathlon or a marathon is beneficial to your immune system. It's just a different comorbidity, if you totally. will, at that point. So anyway, so so this idea that we can that we can turn on genes that, that build muscle, we can turn on genes that store fat, and we can also turn on the genes that burn fat. And and this selective ability to choose behaviors and choose foods that do one or the other is one of the most empowering things that we can do as human beings. And once you understand this and you understand the nuances of how the body responds to these different types of food, to amounts of sleep, to sun exposure, to play, it, it's, it's just an incredible feeling of power that you have over your health that so many people up until now assume they were doomed by their parental genes or they were doomed because they'd already gained 40 pounds. And now they're 55 years old and there's nothing you can do about it. And that's not the case. You can literally reverse this aging process, this weight gain process, this sarcopenia, this lack of muscle tissue through these behaviors. And, and that's really, so my, my whole thing has been, how do I educate people and get them excited about learning about how the body works? Well, I think that you just totally hit on it, that it's, you know, so many people are just living their life that this is all they know and they get used to you know, whether it's being overweight or living with some sort of IBS, that it's like not until your your eyes are open and you're and you learn about what you can do and, and the really the small steps that you can take to make those changes because at the end of the day it's just that it can be that one thing, taking out gluten or taking out a, a seed oil. So Exactly. So I guess getting back to earlier in your story, you know, you started Mark Staley Apple, but prior to that I know that you I, I like to think that you were an, a, an early adapter to blogging, but also an early influencer. I know you had a supplement line, you were on TV and definitely early in on that influencer world. So kind of would love to hear how you've pivoted. And as you look at all those steps that ultimately led you then to starting Primal Kitchen, how that played a role in your journey. Yeah, I, I, I've given talks in the past about just about pivoting, about the concept of pivoting and having a goal and having a passion and having a purpose, but not being so attached to the outcome that you freeze up if things go wrong. I started a supplement company in the early 90s, partly because I was, I'd come out of not just overtraining myself and eating inappropriately for my the purposes, but I wanted, I was involved in the early days of drug testing in sports and I wanted 
to create the sorts of products that, that athletes could take that would enhance their, their recovery, but not be illegal. And so I created a line of sports supplements for athletes like you and me, like people who are training hard. And it failed, it failed miserably because for some reason, athletes think they're immune to the sort of, like I, I'm already doing great things for my body. I'm already training hard. So why would I need these things? So the first pivot was I realized I was selling a lot of these very high potency supplements to people, older people who were interested in the anti-aging aspects of this. And had been starting reading the anti-aging magazines and, and, you know, we're looking at the effects of antioxidants on longevity. And I just got hooked up with a TV show, a little health show called Know the Cause. And the host of the show invited me on one time. I went on, I had a good response. So I wound up sponsoring the show and paying to be on the show. And for the, from 1997 to 2004, I was either on his show or other similar shows, just talking about health and fitness and diet and exercise and and all these things. And oh, by the way, I happen to have these amazing supplements that I sell. And and so it was a great way to have discussions about health and and a good platform to sell my supplements. My my friend who started the show, his name is Doug Kaufman. He still has his show, but the model stopped working for me after a while. It was about 2004. The concept of being on television on a local channel and having a talk show was was still valid, but now there were 300 choices because of dish and direct mm. cable. So the, the idea that you were going to uh, have any sort of a large audience went out the window. Then people started buying stuff on the internet right around then. So I had built my business model around a call center. So I, you know, like call this 800 number and I would have my, my team answer your call and talk you through the answer, all the questions. Well, now the internet was becoming a much more viable way of selling product so I was starting to lose money in my business. And so I actually spent 2005 doing my own show. So I produced and directed and starred in a show called Responsible Health. I had I shot 52 half-hour episodes of that. Wow. Guests on every day. I had I built, you know, built a stage. It was a it was a well-produced show. And I was paying for time on Travel Channel. So for a while there, you could see me on Travel Channel every morning at 8:30 in, in the morning. But again, it just, the business model did not work. I was my own sponsor. And so I had to sell my own products in order to, to recoup what I was spending on production time and, and airtime. So after losing about a million and a half dollars doing that, I thought, well, you know, this is, this is getting dire. So maybe I'll start this new blogging thing. And so I started my blog in 2006, in September of 2006. So it's been over 15 years now. You know, it took a while to grow it, but it was a unique voice in a in a unique space. So there weren't that many health blogs that were talking about ancestral health and the paleo concept. And you know, I wrote in-depth articles that I think resonated with people. I tried to, I tried to be as objective as I could about you know my advice and my parsing of the studies. And it over time it became you know one of the most reviewed. And I, I think we had 1.33 million viewers a month. It, it became a big, wow. a big deal. So I used that as my uh, platform to continue to sell my supplements. But what happened was over time, I realized I wasn't selling as many supplements as I should have given the size of my market and the size of my viewership and readership. I also realized that I was writing so much about food and methods of preparation. And I realized early on that really what makes 
you know, once you cut the sugars and the grains and all of the crap and all of the seed oils out of your diet, there's not a lot left <laughs> to choose from. You know, these are tasty foods, but over time, I think people can get bored with, with trying to eat healthy if you're limited to those sorts of things. And what I realized was so, so much of what we do to uh, maintain an interest in healthy eating is, is found in the sauces, the dressings, the toppings, the methods of preparation, herbs, the spices, and things like that. So my second book, actually, after The Primal Blueprint, was The Primal Blueprint, Healthy Sauces, Dressings, and Toppings. It was a recipe book. came out in 2010. And we didn't sell many at all. And I thought, I thought it was going to be because of the response we'd had to all of the great recipes that we had put on our, on our site. I thought, this is going to crush it. Well, <laughs> sold like you know, 5,000 copies or something like that over the course of a year and a half. So the other aha moment was that, yeah, I, I had the right idea that people do want sauces, dressings, and toppings and other methods of preparation for their food. They just don't want to do it themselves. And so in 2014, <laughs> I said, let me, let me pivot. Let me swing over to making the sauces that I wish existed and, and providing those to people who want some easy method or easy way of putting something on a salad or something on, a, on their meat or Mayonnaise became my, you know, my first real entree into this whole thing, a healthy mayonnaise. Imagine a mayonnaise that, that you know, the more you put on your burger or in your tuna fish, the, the healthier that meal became. So that started 2014. We sold our first product in 2015. The name of the company is Primal Kitchen. Now we have 80, 85 at least products that we make. And it became a real and overnight success because because people did respond to this idea that uh, like they wanted a healthy salad dressing, they wanted a healthy pasta sauce, they wanted a ketchup that was completely organic and unsweetened. Oh, by the way, and tasted great. So finding this niche, you know, was a, was a matter of, of being open to possibilities. Yeah. I mean, there was absolutely nothing in the market when you guys launched and it was just massive. So as you talk about pivoting, what are some tips that you usually like to share as far as, you know, how do you know when to pivot or, or just being open, as you just said, to possibilities? I think it's being open to possibilities. I see a lot of companies, look, I, I, I spent too many years, probably three, three years too many, just telling my team, there's a, there's a solution to this supplement sales issue. We can turn it around. We can make it the success that I think it should be. And in those, say, three years, everything we tried just failed because we weren't listening to the real messaging. The messaging was, geez, Mark, you're making these, you, you, you talk about how beneficial good food is and how it's all you need. And then you're selling a supplement. Like, like there's a disconnect there. Yeah. And so I wasn't listening to that. Now I could say, well, I, I wasted three years when I could have been introducing the food company three years earlier, but timing is also part of this. And it may have been that three years earlier was too early and, and it could have failed because it was a great idea that was, that was too soon. I'm not sure that the uh, recognition that healthy fats were still a good, were a good thing maybe had yet taken hold because as you look at all of our products, they are they're high in fat. They're just high in avocado oil, which is probably the best oil you, you can consume. But maybe the, the general public wasn't quite ready for that. So in addition to being open to the signals, timing is, is, is a really important aspect of starting a business. And so when I did pivot, 
it was, I think, exactly the right time for us to do that. You know, I've, I've pivoted so many times in my career and who's to say that sometimes I pivoted too early, right? And I, and I abandoned what would have been a great idea because it wasn't working and I was sort of out of energy and out of money and, and, and needed to get on to the next thing. So there's no, there's no right or wrong answer here. It's just in my, as I look back on yeah. my own career, everything was perfect. Well, and as you think about time and, and timing being perfect, certainly the outcome of scaling Primal Kitchen to ultimately selling to Kraft from the outside seemed like it was all wonderful timing. So I'd love to go into that a little bit of really scaling Primal, what were those challenges? And, and maybe just to take a step back, when you initially launched the brand, and I do know Morgan, by the way, was the desire always to sell to a big strategic ultimately? Was that Day the one. guiding? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the original plan was to prove a concept that a large number of consumers would be willing to pay a little bit extra for a product that was demonstrably the best in its category. And in many cases, not just a little bit more, but significantly more. So we introduced the mayonnaise first, and it was uh, you know nine ninety five for a twelve ounce jar, which is a big, a big change for people who used to go into Costco and buying a sixty ounce <laughs> jar for eight ninety nine of uh, you know of avocado, excuse me, of of mayonnaise that has you know soybean oil and canola and and whatever oil was cheapest that day that they made it. So we made a lot of decisions that are. Uh, advisors would have said, no, you're, don't do it that way. Starting with launching one product into the marketplace. Many of our advisors said, don't launch until you have three. You have a suite of products. We launched with just the mayonnaise. We sold it online. I was aligned from day one with Thrive Market. I was one of the first, if not the first guy to write a check to start Thrive. And so they came online just as we were launching our mayonnaise. So it was a very symbiotic relationship where they would offer our mayonnaise as they were, they were the only platform online that you could get this new Primal Kitchen mayonnaise. Wow. And, and then we were like, you, you know, we were trying to help them get more members. So we promoted Thrive Market on the site a fair amount. And between the two of us, I think, well, the story that I tell is when we first um, went to our manufacturer and we said, I said, what's, what's the smallest amount of this we can produce in the first run? Because I don't know if it's going to sell. And our co-manufacturer said, well, we... We really don't do this very often, but the but we can do twelve thousand jars. That's that's the smallest run. I'm like, geez, Louise, twelve thousand jars. You got to be kidding me. You're like, I was uh, thinking two hundred. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. I was, and uh, so we did twelve thousand jars, and we sold out basically in the first ten days. That's amazing. Uh, we sold out because of the Thrive Market experience. Because we also sold a lot because I already had this um, infrastructure in my own company. I had a warehouse. I had credit card processing. I had fulfillment. So we were, we were sending out three packs of mayonnaise around the country from, from day one. The next part of the scaling was getting into retail. And because I had spent 10 years building the brand, I had a lot of people within the retail community who knew who I was, knew the concept of the Primal Blueprint, who were already promoting whatever few paleo products happened to be in existence. So one of the buyers at the Rocky Mountain region of Whole Foods, which represented 33 Whole Foods stores, was a, was a reader of mine and, and was a big supporter of, of the lifestyle. He was a crossfitter. This must be David Woods. David Woods, exactly. <laughs> and David, you know, was just so 
so kind and supportive and said, look, Mark, I mean, normally it would take you a year and a half to get into, into Whole Foods because you'd have to submit it for approval. If it got approved, it might be another eight months before it got, you got reset. They call it a reset because you have to get rid of somebody to put you on the shelf. He said, look, we'll just take whatever you make. We, we, we really love the concept. We love the product. We like the marketing. We like the merchandising. We like the, you know, the designs. And that was, so that really got us launched very early. And with the success that we had in the Rocky Mountain region, next thing you know, the Northwest region came on and then the Texas region and, and things started to, to snowball from there. Normally, if you have a healthy product that you put into the health food stores, it might be years before you get into conventional. Well, we were only up for a couple of months and we, we had a meeting with Publix, which is a large Southeastern conventional supermarket company. And we got into Publix very early on. And, and so now we went from you know, zero to really growing quickly, probably as fast as any food company has, has gone, you know, given the nature of the beast, which is condiments. So condiments don't, it's not like a bar where you, you might buy a box of them and eat one a day. Condiments sometimes, you know, last, you know, they're in, yeah. in your refrigerator for weeks, months, years at a time. The good news is we've, we, we had people eating the mayonnaise right out of the jar and eating it as if it were a, a <laughs> snack. So, so we had a, a higher, you know, a higher usage than, than most condiments would have. Ultimately, you did end up selling to Kraft, which was an amazing exit. What was that process and experience like? It was, I mean, very interesting. I'd, I'd always wanted to do that. We got to uh, a point where we knew there's sort of a, a metric that has been tossed about in food that you have to get to a certain amount of sales before you can even be considered as an acquisition. I think that's changed in the last year or two. The numbers dropped a little bit. I think it, it's not as it doesn't have to be as much if you can show momentum um, and velocity, as they say. But we, Morgan and I, decided in 2017 that we were going to start to prepare for a sale. So we started interviewing investment bankers. To handle the sale. And we did that for the end of 2017. But something something that happened in 2017, we toward the end of the year, our sales slowed down. And we thought, well, maybe it's too soon. Maybe we maybe we shouldn't be selling. Maybe we don't want to be selling into a decline. It, well, there wasn't a decline in sales. It was just the, the, the momentous increase in sales had, had slowed down a little bit. So we backed off for a couple of months. And then first quarter of 2018 rolled around and our sales doubled. So we realized how cyclical and seasonal some of these food sales are. So we proceeded to hire an investment banker in like May of 2018, put a book together, you know, did all of the due diligence stuff and had a, a, a small, a private auction among who we knew would be interested buyers. And Kraft Heinz really emerged as the best possible partner. And even though I sold the entire company to them, I still consider them a partner because my goal was always to create a company that was the, that was the largest healthy food company in the country. And by that, I mean, by healthy food, I mean, making, making products that are best in category in every category that, that we're in. And I think Kraft has been extremely gratified and, and very supportive of our growth. And we've been allowed to grow with the same team that we've always had with this, you know, that's amazing. Not, not changing any manufacturers, not having any interference with our decisions. 
just being supportive and just being like, here's your new budget, which is a lot more than it used to be for this, <laughs> for marketing or whatever. So they've been very pleased with the results. And we have as well, because my, as I said, my, my original mission was I want to change the way the world eats. And part of how I did that was through educating people over the, over the prior 10 years with my blogs and my books, and then change the way the world eats included creating products that would appeal to people who maybe never heard of the primal blueprint or never heard of paleo or never heard of keto, but, but, but we're still interested in clean labels and would pick up the product and go, Oh, here, here's something that would fit my way of eating, even if I've never heard of Marxist or keto. So that was phase two of changing the way the world eats. And then phase three was having competitors, having other companies come in and say, we, you know, we think we can compete against primal kitchen. And now there are a lot of companies doing that. And, you know, I feel like a rising tide lifts all boats. Right. And I think that, that part of, part of the increase in competition has benefited us, but it's also benefited the mission, which is to change the way the world eats. And part of that change the way the world eats is getting, getting, manufacturers to make better food. Yeah. So I feel really quite fortunate that we've, that we've been able to take this approach and take this path. And I like the way it's headed. That's awesome. I, it's so nice to hear that, you know, your original mission with Primal has been able to still continue. And I think there's so many people who like don't know strategics and how they can be these days. And I think really hearing that they're continuing to honor your mission and your ingredients and really those guardrails that you started out with is yeah. wonderful to hear. Let's switch gears a little bit into, I don't know where this falls into your one, two, three of your mission, but into your latest book, Two Meals a Day. Yeah. So, so we'd uh, love to hear the inspiration for this book and you know why two meals a day, what are the benefits? Right. So my, my own journey, which started with paleo and then became my own brand of primal, which was a version of paleo that was, I would say, kinder and gentler than the original paleo, allowed a little bit more uh, leeway in certain choices of foods. And then as I got deeper into paleo and started to see the results for myself, I, I was going more toward keto. And so one of my, I have a New York Times bestselling book called The Keto Reset Diet. And the keto reset diet was basically my first emphasis on a concept we call metabolic flexibility. So no matter what your way of eating is, whatever your choices are, the real holy grail, what you're after is metabolic flexibility. It's the ability to burn fat efficiently, the ability to burn basically any substrate that your body has at its disposal for the chore or, or whatever task um, is being presented. So it, it could mean burning the fat on your plate of food or burning the fat stored on your body or burning the carbohydrate on your plate of food or the glucose in your bloodstream or the glycogen in your muscles or the ketones that your liver makes. And if you become metabolically flexible, it means you're, you're great at accessing all of these energy substrates at different times and you don't have to feel bad or feel the effects of switching from one to the other. The danger with keto has, has been people who are keto all the time and who haven't done any other, other work to, to achieve metabolic flexibility, they'll complain sometimes about, oh my God, if I eat you know, 100 grams of carbs one day, I, I get kicked out of keto and I feel like crap for two days and it takes me two days to get back in. Well, that's, that's a person who's probably pretty good at keto, but isn't metabolically flexible. So metabolic flexibility, as I say, 
is this state that you can try to achieve many ways. One, using, using keto is one way to do it. Certainly exercise and lifting weights is another factor in there. Stress management and getting a lot of sleep is another. But another is going as long as you can without eating and forcing your body to, to actually take the fat out of storage and burn it. So many people who are, who are new to keto would say, this keto is great. I cut out carbs. I'm eating 4,500 calories a day. I'm eating steak and eggs for breakfast and I'm eating salmon for lunch and, and eating a whole avocado. And then I'm having, you know, another steak for, for dinner. Well, you know, that's not achieving metabolic flexibility. That's the, the idea is that is as uh, adept as we are at converting excess calories into stored body fat, we need to be as adept at taking those excess calories out of storage and burning them. That was the original intention of this whole energy storage system that we developed through evolution over the years. The access to food is the big, is the big issue. There's so much food around now that we tend to be eating all the time versus our ancestors who the, the default situation was there's not enough food. So when you came across food, you probably overate. You were wired to overeat and then store those excess calories in locations that are so conveniently deposited around the body. It, we're, we're upright, we're bipedal, we walk. So if we can store our fuel, instead of carrying out five gallon cans of fuel with us everywhere we went, if we could store excess fuel on our belly, on our butts, on our upper hips and thighs, that was such a beautiful system and an elegant design for transporting this excess fuel with us. So, so we have that ability to store the fuel. We just have lost not just the ability to burn off the fuel, but the desire to. We have, we have, we have food around. So the aha moment was sort of like, we just eat too damn much food. And that's everyone's problem. If you, if you think about it, most people, myself included for the longest time, the idea of behind food, especially when, it, when it's always prevalent, is what's the most amount of food I can eat and not get fat? What's the most amount of this meal I can eat and not feel like a glutton? What's the most amount of this dessert I can eat and, and not feel guilty about it? And, and I think people not only live their lives that way, but they also, even, they're even people who, you know, are exercise anorexic. In other words, if I eat this much food or if I go to the gym and I, and I, and I do 600 calories on the treadmill, then I deserve to eat more food than I need. Right. And, and now I've earned the right to eat a few more bites of something I probably shouldn't be eating in the first place. So if you, if you flip that concept around and you say, well, what if, what if I thought about what's the least amount of food I can eat and still maintain all my muscle and strength and power and energy and never get sick. And most importantly, not be hungry because hunger screws everything up. So what's the least amount of food I can get away with and, and check out, check off all those boxes. And it turns out it's a lot less than most people think. It's a lot less food. It's 30, 30% less in, in many cases. So you find over, over the years that people eat three meals a day. They're used to three meals a day. It's what, you know, they're told that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. They're told that if they skip uh, a meal or go longer than a couple of hours without eating, they'll cannibalize their muscle tissue. You know, all of these things, by the way, the cannibalizing the muscle tissue thing actually is a thing if you haven't become metabolically flexible. If you're what we call a sugar burner and you're dependent on carbs every couple of hours, then if you skip a meal or two before you adapt 
to, to becoming metabolically flexible, you'll probably cannibalize some muscle tissue. So how do you know some, if you're metabolically flexible? So the first, the first test is basically once you've gone through some of the steps to eliminate carbs and, and kind of force your body to operate exclusively on protein and fat. One of the first tests is you wake up in the morning and, and, and if you just, if you feel like you don't need to eat breakfast, you see how long you can go without eating, you know, any, without needing any food. And as you become more and more meta, metabolically flexible, you wake up, you're already burning fat. You already have everybody. And, and that's, I'm a fairly low body fat person. I still have plenty of body fat. I have enough, I have enough fat on me to probably walk 300 miles without, without needing to eat. I'm not going to do that, but I'm just giving you a <laughs> hypothetical. It's one of these things that if you, if you understand that many of your cravings and, and hungers and, and your entire appetite so much of it is habituation. Sure. You're just used to eating at 1230 because it's lunchtime or you're used to getting up in the morning and having an ego or a, or a, you know, a, a shake or something, or maybe a, a full breakfast. But if, if you start to get in tune with your body's ability to generate energy from whatever substrates available, primarily fat, when you wake up in the morning and you, you if you take a step back and you go, Hey, I'm, I'm actually not hungry. And I could probably go, another couple of hours without eating. And this is what happens almost to everybody who, who goes on a keto-ish eating program is you, is you just go, look, I, if I'm not hungry, why should I eat? First of all, that's like rule number one. Why would you want to eat if you're not hungry? Just because, again, you can and you can get away with it because you won't show the effects of that meal. But if you can, if you can identify what true hunger is and then say, look, I've got I got stuff to do. I don't, I don't want to even waste my time fixing breakfast and cleaning the kitchen or, you know, going out of my way and driving through a, you know, McDonald's to get an egg McMuffin or whatever it is. So if you, if you get to the point where maybe your first meal is at noon or one or two, and then you don't eat past seven or eight o'clock at night, what you've done is you've, is, is you've compressed your eating window window into six or eight hours. Now there's a, ton of great research that shows that that this is maybe an optimal eating strategy and eating range that the longer you go without eating the better it is for you and and that's when the good stuff happens in your body so all the good things happen when you're not eating the repair of damaged cells and damaged dna the consumption of fats and proteins that were just kind of lingering around the the, the killing off of uh, the dying off the consumption auto consumption they call it autophagy of senescent cells, all these things are, and, oh, and the, by the way, the burning of your own stored body fat that you've been trying to get rid of, not you, but people have been trying to get rid of, you know, for weeks or, or months or decades, that starts to burn off. So all the good things happen when you're not eating. And, and it, the eating is just sort of an obligatory, well, I have to fuel up and I have to provide amino acids for, for growth and development. I have to, you know, build muscle and, and make, and make enzymes and things like that. And I need some fat for fuel later on and maybe some carbohydrate, although you really don't even need carbohydrate. So all of this, all of this good stuff happens when you're not eating. Hence the concept of two meals a day. Like if you can get to two meals a day, then, then you are on your way to developing this metabolic flexibility, whether you chose to do it through a keto ish eating strategy or a paleo, but we have people doing two meals a day who are, you know, vegetarian, and doing quite well, you have to be very diligent in, in your choices, but 
it, it's, it's more about the amount of time that you spend not eating than it is, say, eating a high fat diet and being keto that way. On to kind of what your meals look like. We're going to kind of wind that together with our rapid fire because I know we don't have a ton of time left. Okay. So we'll jump into that. First, what is your favorite primal product? Oh, the ketchup. Number one ketchup, number two steak sauce. The steak sauce is, I mean, ketchup sort of, you know, I could put that on everything. And, and I'm, I'm more proud of the technology that went into developing this, this ketchup because this was a, this was a problem that had not been addressed in 15 years of moms going, hey, can't you do something about high fructose corn syrup or artificial Unbelievable. or whatever? So that that's the one I'm probably most proud of. But the, I love the steak sauce too. The steak sauce was my favorite. Your favorite wellness hack? It's just going to sound boring, but sleep. That's not um, boring. Yeah, no, I'm I am I am unapologetic about the amount of sleep that I get. And I think that it's not just the amount of sleep, but it's the consistency. That's the, it's the regularity with which you go to bed within a certain window of time. Saturday night, we were going to go to a party. The party started at midnight. Oh my God. <laughs> and, and, and my wife and I are like, we were going to go. And then, and then we chose not to. And we were in bed at 1030 going, you know, if we were going to go to that party, we would have to get up. Just right about now and go. And and no amount of of sleeping in is gonna make up for that. Cause I was still gonna, if I'd gone to that party and gotten home at three or four, I'd still would have woken up at eight at yeah. the at the latest. And so that would have derailed my so I think like I'm I've never pulled an all-nighter in my life. And my daughter pulled 30 of them in college, you know, and, and I'm like, that's just not who I am. I got I got introduced to quality sleep in college and I, and I just maintain that. So that's my, that's my, I'm not into the term hacking yeah. anyway. I mean, I, I'm, I'm the, I'm the anti-quantified self, right? But because all I care about is how do you feel? I don't care about the numbers. Just how do you how many hours of night of sleep um, at night do you get? Eight and a half with, with, you know, that's about the average amount. I might, I might get nine, I might get eight, but I rarely get, you know, I rarely go for more than nine, even if I'm on vacation in a different part of the world and I've got, you know, dealing with some sort of time, time difference. Nine is the most I would allow myself to get, I think. What's your morning routine look like? Once so I get up and I make a big cup of coffee, rich, rich coffee, the stronger, the better. I do I read two papers. Actual papers, like, you know, newsprint. Actually uh, comes to your door. Comes to my door, yeah. And I do the, I did the New York Times crossword puzzles and Ken Ken's and Sudoku's and all the, all the puzzles that are in whatever papers. I'm, I'm a real stickler for, like, I can't start the day until I finish the puzzles. Usually it doesn't take me that long. Um, do they ever stump you and you just can't finish them? Very rarely. There's, and and if, if it is, it's some arcane kind of <laughs> stupid, like, I'm like, ah, really? seriously. Uh, then I Do you ever um, call up Morgan for the answer for those. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at that. Then I do some work. I do some, maybe a little bit of writing, maybe a little bit of answering emails, uh, some planning strategy. Usually around 1030, I take a break and go down 
I live in a building that has a gym. So either go down to the gym, do a workout, or I go out for a paddle. I, I'm, we're on the ocean. So if, if the weather's good, I'll go in the ocean. If it's not good, I'll go in the bay. I have some friends who live in the Biscayne Bay area of Miami. So I will drive over there and, and do a paddle. Some days I'll do, I have a fat bike. It's a, a bicycle that has four and a half inch wide tires that I ride on the sand. So sometimes I'll do okay. 10 miles on, on the sand. And that is it. That's hard to do. Yeah. So, I'll, but anyway, my workout is usually from 1030 to whenever I finish and then I'll come back and do a little bit more work. And then maybe one 30, I'll have lunch. I have a couple of lunch places that I, that I frequent in Miami beach. And then again, a little bit more work back to work five or six, I will break and go do a fire and ice. So I'll do a sauna for 12 to 15 minutes and then follow that up with a cold plunge, uh, ice bath. We keep ours at the, where I, where I am at 48 degrees. So I try to do anywhere from two and a half to five minutes. If I'm doing the five minutes, I have to, I have to warm up afterwards, but if I'm doing two and a half, I can come out and stay, stay shivering for an hour. That's like that. My, my limit on, on this cold exposure is, is if I have, if I shiver more than an hour, it was probably too much, too much time. Then I go, I have a, a drum kit, uh, electronic drum kit in my condo in Miami. I actually have a, a similar one in my house here in, in Pacific Palisades. So I put on the headphones and I crank it up and I, I drum for 45 minutes or an hour or whatever. And then usually dinner is around 7, 7.30. I'm not opposed to watching TV. So we try to we try to catch up on on some of the shows that are that are being highly touted. Sometimes I, I, I still read a fair amount. I try to read uh, fiction as opposed to nonfiction. I've spent most of my life reading scientific reports and books that are, you know, either how-to books written by my friends that I have to review or whatever. So now I'm just like sticking with, with fiction. And again, go to bed at usually 1030, 11 at the latest. Get up and do it again. It's a great day. Three things that you're currently loving could be product, could be a TV show you're binging. So no sooner had I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of these hacks and, and the quantified self and I'm the anti-quantified self. I no sooner had, had said that, but I did recently purchase a heart monitor because I have all the training I did, 30 years of, of hard endurance training. I ran my heart up to max probably three or four times a week. And that, and that's not good. I've, you know, I've written books about that experience. Primal endurance was my way of addressing that topic and saying, you know, that was way too much. And if I would never recommend anyone train for uh, a marathon or a triathlon, but if you want to, if you do, if you insist on doing it, here's, I'll show you how to do it. Right. So I, I did damage to my heart. I have a, what they call premature ventricular contractions. It's a, it's, it's like people, so many people in my generation have AFib, atrial fibrillation, again, from, from overtaxing the heart. So anyway, so I take, I take drugs for this to slow my heart rate down and, and to maximize my heart rate at like 135 beats a minute. So I can't get my heart rate over 135. Well, when I was in Europe this summer, I left my, my heart meds on my nightstand, right? You know, and, and I, so I had, I actually had somebody send them uh, to me in, in Italy and they got lost. Uh, they, they, you know, the um, Italian customs held them and they, I had to sign all these documents and I had to pay a fee. And, and, and then at the last minute they said, we can't, you know, 
we can finally, after two weeks of trying to get them to you, they said, well, it's going to be two, five days to get them to you. And I'm like, well, I'm leaving tomorrow. So that was the end of that. So long story short, I, I went a month without, without my heart meds. I didn't feel that bad. Wow. So, so then I, so that a friend of mine had this thing, uh, it's called fourth frontier and it's literally a chest belt that you wear and it's, and it's hooked up to an app on your phone and it gives you an EKG readout of every heartbeat you do during a workout. So I wear it sometimes like if I'm going on a, on a fat bike ride in the sand and it's 90 degrees out and I'm leaving at 11 o'clock in the morning, I can track my heart rate, not only my heart rate, but my breathing rate correlated with the amount of the speed. Um, but also I can, I can literally go in and see every heartbeat and every, every electrical signal of every heartbeat. So I can see where the, skipped, where the skipped beats are and when they happened. And so I can use it as a, as a true diagnostic tool. When I send it off to my cardiologist, he's fascinated by it. So I think I'm really loving this device. And I think it's, it's a really cool device. It's called fourth frontier, you know, TV shows, I, I like a lot of TV now, so there's nothing there that, that I'm loving. I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of the minimalist shoe movement. So I'm loving wearing five-toed shoes and I'm loving the fat biking. The fat biking is something, I will say that the fat biking is something that when I, when I was riding and training a lot and doing 200 miles a week on the road, on a road bike, and every year, one of my, somebody I knew would get killed, get hit by a car. So I realized how dangerous cycling on the roads can be. And now adding, that was before cell phones were a big thing. Now cell phones make it even worse. Sure. So I sold my bike, my road bike, when my son was born 27 years ago, and I hadn't been on the road. I hadn't been outside on a bike wow. for 27 years. And then a friend of mine said, you got to try this, this biking in the sand. And I, and I'm like, well, you know, whatever, I'll go out. Well, he crushed me the first day. He just absolutely humiliated me. So I said, okay, I'm in, <laughs> I got to try this. So I bought a couple of these bikes. Now I have, I have a, a few, I have one for my wife. It's motorized so she can keep up with me. And it's a motor, you know, it's an assisted yeah, yeah. assist bike. And so now I'm, I'm all about this riding in the, in the deep sand and it's just a great challenge. And it's, so I'm outside, I'm riding outside, but there's zero likelihood of getting hit by a car. There's no cars in the sand. In fact, the worst thing, worst thing can happen is you're going so slow that you fall over and usually you're clipped in. So if you fall over and you're going that slow, you don't even have time to, to unclip your feet. So you, you kind of look kind of silly, like you're, you know, here you're flopping around in the sand, but, but you can't get hurt because you're going so slow and the sand is soft. So it's like falling in powder in the snow or something. Have fun. I got to try it. What do you want more of in your life? I, I feel like I have everything I need. So I really, I feel like it would be selfish to say I want more of something. I mean, I, what I want for humanity is I want more sanity in terms of government policy, for instance. I got a real thing about where the country is headed in terms of the, of the politics. But that's, I want that for everybody. So for myself, I'm, I'm very happy. I'm very content. You know, my wife and I just, we had that conversation just a couple of days ago where, where we just said that, like, we have everything we want. Like there's nothing, there's nothing on the wish list, you know, other than the health of grandchildren and all of the you know, sort of normal stuff. But in terms of, of how we live our lives and what we would do and, you know, what we would do differently and orchestrate, uh, we we're doing exactly everything right now that we want to be doing, nothing that we don't want to be doing. So it's sort of perfect. That's awesome. Congratulations. What a peaceful place to be in. 
your favorite two meals of your two meals of the day? What are those go-tos? I mean, my favorite food is lamb chops. I love lamb chops. And, and I'm the only um, <laughs> danger is eating them too often because there's so many, like where I live in, in Miami, everybody's got a lot of a lot of restaurants have great lamb chops, so it's tempting to have that. Beyond that, you know, I still I still like a really well composed salad with a lot of healthy salad dressing on it. So I don't eat them often anymore. I've I've, I've gone from you know I was the big ass salad guy. I was yeah. promoted promoted having a big ass salad every day. I don't do that for myself much anymore. And, and I think the, the effect of that is when I do have a salad, I, you know, I appreciate it. I want it to be great. I want the crunchy factor. I want the different taste stuff. I like lots of herbs and things in there. So um, that would be probably another, you know, favorite. It's not a go-to meal because I don't eat it often, but it's probably one of my favorite meals. And last question in the rapid fire, what is your number one non-negotiable to thrive on your wellness journey? Well, the sleep thing is, yeah. is, is absolutely non-negotiable. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say, uh, again, that's, that was like, this party was going to be, you know, a, a Halloween rager and we chose not to go because I, I just knew it wasn't going to be worth the, you know, three hours of, of, of merriment and, and, you know, gaiety and whatever the, whatever else you wanted to, it was not going to be worth it. And, uh, I feel that that's, you know, been a, even when I travel and I cross, you know, nine time zones, I'm very diligent about, about my protocol, my, my jet lag protocol. And so I, I don't experience jet lag because I know exactly how to handle it. So yeah, that's the, that's the non-negotiable. I'm right there with you. Totally agree. So in closing, what is next for you? What's next for, I know you have some exciting new stuff at Primal as well. Yeah. So we've got dipping sauces. We've got, what was the, God, we've got so many, so many, we got the gravies. Some gravies. The gravies yeah. yeah. Are outrageous. And again, we, 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 we look at all the things that people put on food and, uh, and, and is a big, a big deal in some parts of the country. And nobody's really addressed this with, you know, a better for you gravy that, that, you know, it fits all of the, ingredient profiles, but also most importantly, tastes great. So yeah, so I would have uh, people try the gravies and then I'm, you know, I'm always working on a book. I'm always, you know, we've got, I, I don't know if people know that I have the Primal Health Coach Institute where we train people to be health coaches. Um, we've put 5,000 people through this program. It's, it's transformative for a lot of people. We've had physicians and, and chiropractors and, and trainers go through the program. So that's Primal Health Coach Institute. If anybody's interested in taking on coaching, life coaching and health coaching as a, as a profession. And then you also have your new podcast or the Evolve podcast. The, the Evolve with... podcast. Yeah. So, so Morgan and I, mostly Morgan, you know, it's now the Primal Kitchen podcast and we're having a lot of fun when she and I are on it together, we're, you know, rehashing in depth the old days and the journey, but also some amazing guests. And uh, we're looking forward to growing that uh, well into the future with, uh, you know, again, and it's, it's difficult to kind of rise above in the podcast world these days, as you know, yeah. as you know, so we're, we're anxious to take on that challenge. Absolutely. 
Well, and I know we also have a discount code for our fans for 20% off anything at Primal Kitchen. The code is purely Elizabeth 20. So thank you very much. I'm sure everyone would be very excited for that one. And Mark, thank you so much for your time. This is so wonderful. Could have continued the conversation and picked your brain, I think, for another couple of hours. Great. Well, I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me on Live Purely with Elizabeth. I hope you feel inspired to thrive on your wellness journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review. You can follow us on Instagram at purely underscore Elizabeth to catch up on all the latest. See you next Wednesday on the podcast.